The year is 1971. We're in upstate New York, surrounded by a massive wall of stinging fog. The ground is muddy, and trenches are dug all around us. Screams come from every direction. Men appear in the white fumes, dressed in high black boots and gas masks. They carry shotguns and fire at any moving shadow. Below them, dozens of half-naked men lay belly down, hands behind their heads. Quickly, the masked men march through the fog until they are swallowed up. The only evidence of their arrival, the blood-soaked mud they leave in their wake. Their dark sleeves sport a badge reading, New York State Police. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. Cecil B. DeMille, the director of such epics as The Ten Commandments and The Greatest Show on Earth, once said, It is impossible for us to break the law. We can only break ourselves against the law. Lawmaking is the art of putting morality into words, and it provides an ever-shifting image of humanity. Many of us can be classified as lawbreakers, whether it be a speeding ticket or something more serious. We all know what it's like to encounter that hard line. But no one can obey all laws at all times. Rules may be black and white, but human beings inhabit the gray. Ever since the first written codes back around 1700 BC, when the state grew into being, people have needed a place to separate those who abide with those who don't. Hammurabi's Code, Mosaic Law, many ancient charters dictate what should be done to the criminal. That's when prisons started to become a necessity. Early on, imprisonment wasn't used as a punishment. Usually it was to hold the accused until the punishment was determined. More often, the punishment was allowing the victim a chance at enacting vengeance. It wasn't until Plato suggested that we defy the desire to simply enact vengeance, the whole eye for an eye thing, onto the criminal and instead work towards reforming them. But prisons would go through many transformations before arriving at the House of Corrections it is today. Some prisons are more famous than others. The first prison is lost to time. But many have stood the test of time, burned into our collective memory. The ancient Athenians had a prison named the Desmetarian, or the Place of Chains. The Romans had the Tulia Room, a modified sewer where prisoners awaited trial and execution. It's said to have housed St. Paul and St. Peter, and in the medieval times served as a place of worship. Off the shores of France, the Chateau d'If rests above the water, an island topped with high brick towers and sheer cliff faces. The structure and location made it essentially escape-proof, giving it a dark finality, inspiring Alcatraz just off of our own California shore. Going to Deif meant never returning to life. It was this infamy that led it to be one of the first prisons to be written into a work of fiction, The Count of Monte Cristo. Napoleon thought of it as a refuge, if only for the dead. Since he knew no one would willingly venture toward it, 
he instructed his subjects to bury him there on the island. His body stayed there, in solitude, 18 years before being moved. Andersonville, Georgia, not far from where I live now, is the site of an infamous prisoner of war camp. It covered about 16 acres and was surrounded on all sides by a log fence. One side was dubbed the Deadline, for that's where the bodies were dumped. Anyone caught near the Deadline was shot without question, adding to its formidable mass. What makes Andersonville so notorious was not where it was or what it looked like. In fact, many prisons during the Civil War had a deadline. It was the conditions of living that were so bad. Most men starved to death or died of scurvy or dysentery. 45,000 men went in, 13,000 died inside. When Union soldiers finally liberated the camp, they were met with a horrifying sight. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons, covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men, in the heat and intensity of their feeling, exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? God protect us! And all thought that God alone could bring them out alive from so terrible a place. Sergeant Major Robert Kellogg wrote that less than 200 years ago. It seems the cruelty of man thrives within prison walls. The morning of September 9th was just like any other at Attica State Prison. The walls were high and gray, most of the men inside were black, and all the guards were white. Conditions in Attica were poor. Overcrowding led to a lack in quality meals, one roll of toilet paper a month, one shower a week, and roaches infesting the kitchen. Many of the inmates were politically minded, with the Black Panther movement at its peak and the Nation of Islam growing rapidly. That morning, it all fell apart. The flashpoint came when a prisoner was sent to solitary confinement after assaulting a guard. This angered some of his fellow inmates, and they broke him loose. The staff decided to punish the whole cell block by changing their schedule and not allowing them outside after breakfast. Anger spread, and soon could not be controlled. The prisoners suddenly stormed the staff and took hostages as they went. A full riot was in swing. Now, this was just the breaking point, the climax to an ever-increasing tension. A few weeks earlier, a prominent Black Panther leader, George Jackson, was murdered by guards in San Quentin, and this enraged his friends in Attica. It seemed the prisoners could be killed for the slightest infraction, suffering in their own filth. Members of the Nation of Islam and a few other outspoken inmates soon took charge of the riot. They sequestered those injured and instructed no one to leave the prison. It was only a matter of time before the outside world found out about the takeover. The governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, was notified, along with the state police and the National Guard. A state of emergency was declared. With a rough form of order, the prisoners opened the gate and allowed representatives of the Board of Corrections and other entities to enter. Muslim inmates surrounded them as a de facto group of bodyguards, keeping the leery prison population at bay while negotiations could be made. A list of desires were presented to the outsiders. Better food, better medicine, better education, better pay and representation. The Attica inmates wanted to start a prison revolution. They wanted their prison to help them get better, 
not foster what sent them there in the first place. Because of this, at the top of their agenda was the desire to talk to the governor. They wanted amnesty. For four long, arduous days filled with arguing, media hype, and police swaggering, the talks went on. The hostages grew weary, their families begging to see them. And in all that time, the governor never came. With their fangs dripping, the state police eagerly awaited the order. They watched the inmates through sniper scopes and polished their rifle barrels just outside the main gate. A tank sat outside and helicopters circled from above. It looked more like the prelude to war than containing a prison riot. And then, the negotiations fell through. A guard, injured in the riot, had died. There was no turning back, no hope for amnesty. The inmates were ordered to surrender, and instead, they brought the hostages to the walls and put knives to their throats. The next morning, state troopers dropped tear gas into the main yard, an area they dubbed Times Square. With the whole block filled with gas, the troopers filed in, shooting nonstop for two minutes at the prisoners armed with clubs and bats. When the smoke cleared, 43 people were dead. Ten of them were hostages. Reports read that they'd seen throats slit during the takeover, that the prisoners had stayed true to their threats. But medical evidence would show all of the deaths were due to gunshot wounds. The commission set forth to investigate the happening said, with the exception of Indian massacres in the late 19th century, the state police assault, which ended the four-day prison uprising, was the bloodiest one-day encounter between Americans since the Civil War. Law enforcement brutality is something fresh from the front pages of today's news. Every day we're hearing about men and women being shot or strangled on the streets or in their prison cells. But this is something that's been going on for decades now. A great example of this is immortalized in 1975's Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino. Pacino and his slow-witted friend are two would-be bank robbers. Their plan backfires and they are stuck inside the bank, forced then to take hostages. Tensions rise as the entire New York police force encroaches on them. Guns aimed high. Negotiations are set into place, and Pacino comes out for the first time, a hostage at his side. Across from him, the bullish detective beckons him to give up. Rough language ahead. Come on, quit while you're ahead. All you got is attempted robbery. Armed robbery. All right, armed then. Yeah. Uh, nobody's been hurt. Release the hostages. Nobody's going to worry over kidnapping charges. The most you're going to get is five years. You get out in one year, huh? Kiss me, yeah. What? Kiss me. When I'm being fucked, I like to get kissed hey, a come lot. Come on, come yeah. on, come on. You're a city cop, right? Robbing the bank's a federal offense. They got me on kidnapping, armed robbery. They're going to bury me, man. I don't want to talk to somebody who's trying to calm me. Get somebody in charge here. I am in charge I don't want to talk to some flunky pig trying to calm me, man. You don't have to be calling What's he pig? doing? Will you get back over there? What are you moving in there for? Will you What's get the doing? fuck back there? Huh? Get back What's there. What are you doing? Look at him with him. Get over there. Go on back there, man. Get over there, will you? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. Oh, God, I was going to kill him. Attica! 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 Att
Remember Attica, Pacino cries. Remember Attica. One month before Attica happened, Professor Philip Zimbardo held a now infamous experiment. Many of you have probably heard of it, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Zimbardo picked 24 students and divided them into two groups, the guards and the prisoners. He then set up a mock prison at the school and paid participants $15 a day. Zimbardo wanted to see if the circumstances around humankind, institutions, and hierarchy could dictate human behavior. Would the students' morality stay intact while they inhabited their specific roles? Now, this experiment wouldn't be famous if it didn't achieve its goal. Soon after beginning, the guards' behavior became more and more abusive, the prisoners more defiant, each at his most primal. The guards would take privileged items from the inmates like pillows, mattresses, and even being able to empty their sanitation buckets. Footage of the experiment shows Zimbardo acting as prison superintendent, saying to the guards, you can create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, a sense of fear to some degree. You can create a notion of arbitrariness, that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system, you, me and they'll have no privacy. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, in this situation, we'll have all the power, and they'll have none. The experiment lasted six days before being called off. The U.S. houses more inmates than any other country on the planet. Roughly 1% of the adult population spent time incarcerated last year. That's a ton of people. 2.2 million people. It's clear that the U.S. believes in prison as the number one option for reform. I think the best word for prison is penitentiary, which at its root means the place of humbling. It gets back to what Plato and others had in mind. We try and rehabilitate those who've crossed the lines we've set in place. Oftentimes... Prisoners are treated as less than human, and for some crimes, I can understand that. But in a country where almost one out of 100 of us are behind bars, we must resist our urge to condemn eternally. That's not our job. The more we deny what humankind is capable of, the less we have an understanding of what we truly are. We should be able to hold a mirror up to our faces and look unabashedly at the wonders and woes of our doing. We should be humbled by what we see. I believe our prisons would be filled less and with different people if we held to what Plato envisioned. In Attica, they didn't riot because they wanted to escape the walls around them, but to escape the conditions within those walls. How do we treat those who haven't treated us well? Where does human dignity come from? Is it absolute? Can we lose it? All of these questions should be at the center of any prison reform. History is littered with examples of what happens when we forget them.
Thank you for listening. Circa is written and recorded by me, produced by the Bento Block, and supported in part by our patrons. If you're looking forward to next week's episode, check out our Patreon page and see what comes with being a patron. Everything from perks like getting each episode early, behind-the-scenes content, and upcoming merch. For more info, visit the link in the description. See you next Monday, and remember, you are history.